This is an ABC podcast. The History Listen. Hello, Rebecca Huntley here. Welcome to The History Listen. In NAIDOC week earlier this month, Western Australia's Police Commissioner apologised for the force's past mistreatment of Aboriginal people. He acknowledged the role police played in removing children from their parents. It was a state with particularly brutal policies. The apology coincided with the centenary of the notorious Moore River native settlement, where many of these children were taken. But one home for Aboriginal children in Perth suburbs, known as Sister Kate's, was particularly pernicious. It was a home for children with fairer skin. The aim? Well, in the words of A.O. Neville, the state's chief protector of Aborigines, to breed out the black. And a content warning for today's program, there's discussion of sexual abuse and some offensive language. Here's Kirsty Melville with Sister Kate's Whitewashing the Children. Mr Neville, it was known to a lot of Aboriginal people still as Mr Devil. Mr A.O. Neville, Western Australia's infamous chief protector of Aborigines from 1915 to 1940. Mr Neville had this idea that he could not just get, remove Aboriginal culture but breed out the colour and, and physical characteristics of Aboriginal people. And I'm sorry, that word breed is his word. It was a, a diabolical sort of plan. West Australian legislation in the 1900s allowed extraordinary intervention into the lives of Aboriginal families, some of the most extreme in the country. And it was made possible by distance, by isolation, parochialism, and by a very determined A.O. Neville. Everybody knew that your family, your children were at risk of being stolen. Donald, Daryl, Bonnie, Bill, Beverly, and me, Eva and Wesley. Eight of us were taken that day. I think it was 6th of December 1961. For a very long time, the Native Welfare Act 1905 made the Chief Protector the legal guardian of any child of mixed race ancestry, had the legal right to remove any children of mixed descent from their mother with no case of any neglect and that is how they facilitated the widespread removal of Aboriginal children. I recall going to my grandmother. She had a humpy. We were taken from there and I still know that day. So what was the reason given for you being taken away? That we were neglected. Mm. I don't know how we were neglected. We were all put in a car and woke up somewhere. That was not a home. Obviously it was Sister Kate's orphanage. Sister Kate's, quite possibly the closest A.O. Neville got to realising his vision of breeding out the black. And yes, it was known colloquially as an orphanage, despite the children's parents being very much alive. We'll come back to Sister Kate soon, but first a little more about Neville's vision. Here's Anna Habick, a research professor in humanities at Curtin University and the author of Broken Circles, A History of the Stolen Generations. Well, Mr Neville basically wanted to remove Aboriginal people who were being a nuisance, 
in inverted commas, to white people, particularly in the little country towns and the wheat belt that were being set up. And so he had this great vision to develop the native settlements one in Karalup down near Katanning and one at Moor River or Mugamba. And so he really thought that this was the way to solve the Aboriginal problem. The Aboriginal problem was that they hadn't disappeared. So he thought that you could round up all of these people, put them into these settlements and that the elderly people could pass away, the adults could be working around the settlement and the children would be learning a bit of maths and so on and they could become servants and labourers and then they'll gradually blend in and disappear as a distinct group of people. Notice, if you will, the half-caste child. And there are ever-increasing numbers of them. Now, what is to happen to them? He was a harsh person. What do you say? Black must go white. So he's going to not just get, remove Aboriginal culture, but read out the colour and, and physical characteristics of Aboriginal people. And that was a form of eugenics, so his idea was that you could take them from their parents, put them in an institution. He could put them in a sort of institution where they would be trained to be like white people. But also he had the power to control marriages. So he tried to use that to force people to marry lighter castes of people so then they would have lighter children. And that was his dream. Here is the answer. Three generations... Half-blood grandmother, quadroon daughter, octroon grandson. Now, as you can see in the third generation, no trace of native origin is apparent. The continuing infiltration of white blood finally stamps out the black color. The Aboriginal has simply been bred out. That's an actor playing A.O. Neville in the 2002 film Rabbit Proof Fence. You can imagine Neville's delight when sister Kate Clutterbuck from the English Anglican Order, Sisters of the Church, wrote to him in 1932, wanting to set up a home specifically for half-caste children. Sister Kate's vision was a compassionate one. In a letter to Neville, she said, I want the most poorest and neglected children, not those who have mothers who love and care for them. And that might have been what sister Kate wanted, but it wasn't what actually happened. Neville saw the opportunity to further his biological absorption plan. And so Sister Kate's children's cottage home was opened in 1933. Here's Hannah McGlade, Senior Indigenous Research Fellow at Curtin University and former resident of Sister Kate's. Sister Kate's was identified specifically as a home that was there for the light-skinned Aboriginal children. And they specifically targeted children of mixed heritage and ancestry and the idea that you could make Aboriginal children into white people and that would be the end of the Aboriginal race. Did she unwittingly play into his hands? I always felt like it was a little bit like a marriage made in heaven, that they were both on the same similar tracks. She's coming from a more humanitarian and Christian perspective. He was very Christian too, but they just came together at the right moment. They could fit off each other in a way. He could sort of bring the children in and she could look after them and care for them. And so that was a, a good arrangement for both of them. It provided a place for children who were so-called near white, being trained to think they were white, to become white in culture, in their lifestyle, in their choice of a partner for life. So did he have guidelines on how white one had to be? He 
did a lot of it on, on appearance. When you look at the archive on the covers of some of the, of the files, there are all these fractions. You think, goodness me, what is that about? It's Mr Neville working out whether these people came under the Act or not. It's whether they were quarter cast, whether they were, all those sort of old derogatory words that I don't want to be repeating. From the first, very beginning, the children had some hope. And so you had to take them and give them an education. Anna Habick. A.O. Neville began by personally handpicking children from the Moor River native settlement just north of Perth and instructing his contacts across the state to forcibly remove the fairest children for Sister Kate's. Hannah McGlade. Well, the government had staff who found out where Aboriginal children were living. As we saw in the famous movie Rabbit Proof Fence, the staff of the protector would come in and basically abduct the children from their mothers. And they had the legal authority to act in that way. I'm Sandra Hill. I'm an elder and a cultural custodian of the Wadandi people. And I live here in Bailing Up in the southwest of Western Australia. Mum, mum was taken in 1933. They were at the Caversham camp and Nana was collecting the eggs and the girls were just playing. And the, the black car just drove up and went and just grabbed them, literally grabbed them. And threw them in the back of the car and Nana, by the, she heard them screaming. And by the time she got out of the bamboo where the, she was gathering the eggs, they were in, locked in the back of the car and um, they just drove off and Nana was just saying, give me back my babies, give me back my babies. And that was the last memory she had of her mother. They were put in Moor River and just like in Rabbit Proof Fence, A.O. Neville came along and looked under their clothes to see how fair they were under their clothing. The following children will come forward. Uh, and then he said, oh, you can go on that line, you can go on that line, depending on how dark you were or how pale you were. What are we doing now? They're checking for the fair ones. Why? They've got to take them to Sister Kate's. They're more clever than us. They can go to proper school. Her and Annie Hilda were the first two of seven children that went to Sister Kate's in Buckland Hill near Fremantle. How was Sister Kate's different to other homes for Aboriginal children at the time? Sister Kate's was in a suburban area in Perth, which was different to most of the other places which are in the country and isolated. And so the children lived in cottages with their cottage parents and they went on little holidays to the seaside. And so that was quite different to Moor River, which was packed out with people, overcrowded, and lots of children crammed into unsatisfactory big dormitories in classrooms, not being taught anything, basically, and very poor hygiene. So there were the conditions were completely different. Whereas here, they went to the state school. They were mixing there with all the white kids. And one little anecdote that people always tell about, they had a little place they'd go and stay down the coast and they, they'd have to be kept out of the sun because if they went in the sun, they'd look very tanned and then they might be show that they had this Aboriginal background or something. So there was, there was a lot of effort put into that to get them to feel that they were white and, of course, I mean, the ultimate, to keep them separate from their families as much as possible. And that was always a frustration all the way along because the parents didn't go away. And so the parents were always there 
there wanting to see their children and the other ones were different because they didn't have that concept of social engineering from Mr Neville. Sister Cade herself was known to be quite kindly. I've heard the older people refer to her as mum. And you can see some of the photos where she's holding the babies. She certainly was a hands-on carer who loved the children and who was a very good-hearted person. So she was in it for the right reason. I think she was obviously a product of her time. Um, She did not really, I don't think, see the suffering that was being caused to the Aboriginal parents whose children were being stolen in this way. So she partook from this place of ignorance or not knowing. It was just a strict regimen that they got used to. I mean, Mum and Auntie Hilda were used to just being free and being able to run around and play and all that. All that stopped with Sister Kate's. It was a hard life. Mum was sent out to work when she was 14. She was sent to Carnamar, she was sent to Kew, she was sent to Bridgetown, South Perth, Three Springs. She worked as a maid as a servant. What were those placements like? The ones on the stations were difficult because the men were always after her. She was a teenager, she was a girl, you know, and she briefly touched on that, but she wouldn't go into the detail. But Aunty Hilda told me a considerable amount of um, stuff that happened to her. Sandra Hill's mum's story is a common one. The children of this era of Sister Kate's were raised to pass as white. They were educated and trained as domestic servants and labourers. And there are many who left to go on and have very successful careers, including Sue Gordon, who became Western Australia's first Aboriginal magistrate, and footballer, Graham Polly Farmer. But after Sister Kate died in 1946, the cottage home slowly went downhill. The forced removal of children continued, and over the years, abuse and neglect crept in. Sandra's mum was one of the first children taken to Sister Kate's in 1933. She never imagined that in 1958, history would repeat. It was at Point Sampson that the policeman came and took us from Point Sampson. I was six. My older sister was eight. Uh, Younger sister was four and a half, five, and my little brother was about two and a half. And a policeman came to the door. He had a piece of paper in his hand. And the policeman said, oh, would you kids like to come and I'll get you some lollies and we'll, you know, would you like to come for a drive in my big car? And we said, oh, yeah, you know, lollies and a drive in a big car. We just didn't do that. So, you know, we all clambered into the car. But then we were started to freak out because he took a right turn and that's the way back to Robin. And he just kept driving. And we started crying. And I mean, as we drove away, mum was standing there and she was crying. And it it didn't make any sense. And she sort of collapsed. She knew that she would not see us again, but we didn't. And um, we were taken to Roeburn. They chloroformed us, and I don't know, have no idea to this day what they did that for. And then we were put in the old Roeburn jail. Four little kids all sleeping on the floor in a locked cell. 
We were then taken to Sister Kate's orphanage for half-caste kids and then separated. We were so distressed because we could see hear Trisha and Daryl calling us and calling out for mum and just crying, endlessly crying. My name's Glenys Collard. I was born in Condinan in 1958. I, I know the day we were taken and I know that we were crying. We was all crying, but they said they was going to take us back home, but we didn't go home. We went into Sister Kate's. My worst nightmares started then from the carers' two sons. They were 15 and 17. The sexual abuse. These boys used to take turns, their penises and that in my face, and it just didn't stop. It was a disgusting place. Their cottage mothers were cruel. They beat us. They tortured us emotionally. I was force-fed food that I'd never had in my life before. I was held back in a chair and the house mother's sons held my arms behind my back and forced milk and cream and junk it down my throat until I vomited and I'd have to clean up whatever I vomited. This happened on a daily basis. I saw girls being sexually molested. By who? By the house father. Little girls with their pants down and over his lap. And we'd just have to back out of the room because we didn't want it to be us. And I hate that I didn't do anything, but what could you do? If you wet the bed, the next morning they stood you, you had to balance on a milk churn. They'd put the wet sheet over your head and all the kids would fall past you as they went to church. And then you had to stand on the milk churn and wash the sheet by hand. Little kid, six, seven, eight. Another time Barbara and I finally got to see Trisha and we grabbed her on the veranda and hugged her and, um, and she winced and went, oh. And um, we didn't know why. And Barbara immediately just pull, pulled up her top and she had all these marks on her back, all these big welts, about seven of them. She was fucking six, six. But the abuse didn't just come from inside Sister Kate's. It came from outside too. Hannah McGlade. Well, they got it in their heads that the good white people should have this experience with the Aboriginal children in their home and any white people could put their hands up and uh, basically have the children come and live with them on the weekend and this is where a lot of the sexual abuse happened. There was no screening procedures. There was no common sense. They even allowed single men to come and say they wanted children. Oh, jingies. They would line all of us up and there'd be about 12 of us. And the majority of the times it was men. And we were told we had to smile and be thankful for this was something people are doing for us, so we should appreciate this. And you couldn't say, no, I don't want to go. What would happen on those weekends? Sexual abuse, sexual abuse. 
continue. One man took us out and he had a wife with long black hair and they had a baby and things like, well, we will sleep outside tonight under the stars. But we were sleeping outside so he could sexually abuse us. And that man took us out about seven or eight times easily. But I did get a nice family. And then I realised I used to be on that lounge next door. Why was I on the lounge next door? Because that man had taken me home to his house alone. And he had a checked crocheted or knitted rug which he'd keep over my legs because he had his fingers constantly inside of me but I didn't know what I was supposed to say to anyone. You know the the contradiction between how it used to be when my mother was in Sister Kate's when Sister Kate was there and her experience to the experience we had how could it have got so extreme you know from a kind place where you could grow up with at least a little bit of dignity to this hellhole. Anything to do with Aboriginal people and culture was rejected and the Aboriginal children were usually told that they didn't have a family that loved them. Their family were bad people. And you hear the stories about the families that came looking for the children and they were standing at the gates and that the kids were never told that their family had been writing the letters, had been trying to see them, that they always did love them. We were methodically told that mum didn't want us and that she dumped us and, you know, we were told someone heard us crying under a piece of tin in the bush. And, and I know it didn't happen. Twelve years before we found our dad, they told us dad had died. That's what we started to believe. They never acknowledged that we were Aboriginal. If anybody said language or anything or did any signing or anything, because we all did that. We all said Noongar words. It got beaten out of us. We weren't supposed to be Aboriginal. I didn't finish grade seven at Sister Kate's and it was because of all this stupid sexual abuse bullshit. All I wanted to do was go home and the government wouldn't let me go home. So the next best thing I could do was walk. And everybody knew you had to go to the park. And I walked all the way into the park and I... Which park? Beaufort Park, and I saw about... All the way from Sister Kate's? Yep. That's a really long way. How old were you? Eleven. But I had to. I, I couldn't stop there no more. So by the time Glenys Collard was eleven, she was homeless and living in a park. Her parents, Don and Sylvia, had constantly tried to visit their children at Sister Kate's, but they were always turned away, and eventually, they were banned. Glenys was sexually assaulted while she was living in the park, and she tried to go home to her parents several times, but every time the police would come and try to take her back to Sister Kate's. And still, the government continued to force her dad to pay maintenance for all eight of his stolen children until they turned 18. So then what changed? What stopped you from living in the park? Being pregnant. I was just turning 15 and I thought that was good. I was really pleased to look after this baby and not 
it'll be my very own. No one will take it away from me. You were still technically a ward of the state then, you were just 15. I was. How did you manage to keep her? Because that's quite unusual for the time in, in that situation. Yes, my mum and dad managed that very well. So they weren't going to let it happen again? Definitely not. We went way out the other side of Hyden, where we used to camp, where you can hear more than five miles away. If there was going to be any monarchs coming, they weren't going to, they wouldn't have been able to find us. And that was the end of Glenys Collard's fraught relationship with Native Welfare. After being removed at three, she was finally back with her family. But for Sandra Hill, it was a different story. After three years at Sister Kate's, she was fostered by a non-Aboriginal family. They were loving, but the whitewashing continued. If we were walking down a street and there was a black man, she would march us across the street and walk on the other side of the road so we wouldn't have to interact or see that black man. But the defining moment was when we got this wonderful set of Encyclopedia Britannica, the beautiful leather-bound white set. And the first one is A. And that's the first one I took out of the box and I went straight to Aborigines. And I was laying on my belly, reading every word about Aborigines and I'm looking at the pictures and thinking, wow, that's who I am. And I got belted. And they took the book away and I never saw the book again. So as you started growing and, and, and having an increased awareness of the fact that you were Aboriginal, how did, how did you feel about yourself? I didn't know how to relate because that's what it does. It takes away your identity. It really hit home when I went in my early 30s to a nightclub and these girls came in and they were noirs. And I was afraid because I'd, I'd been taught to be afraid of Aboriginal people. And they said, oh, you noir. And I went, oh, excuse me? I didn't even know what Noongar was. Not a clue. You Aboriginal? And I said, oh, yeah, I think I've got this much. And they said, we thought you were Aboriginal. Said, who's your mob? And I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Because I'd lived a white life. I'd been whitewashed. How does know? that make you feel now, looking back? I feel shortchanged. I wouldn't have had to go through all that to feel like I was nothing and no one and I would have been able to find my identity a lot quicker than I did. And I really resented her for that. And I, I mean, I told her and she apologised to me and said, I didn't know you were in such pain. If I'd known, I would have let you be Aboriginal, but I thought it would harm you. I thought you could get away with being white. And I said, no, I can't. I said, Mum. And she said, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that you'd lost so much. I loved her so much in that moment. She was a beautiful lady who meant nothing but the best, but just got caught up in the black and white thing. Sandra Hill has gone on to be a successful artist whose work hangs in both the National Gallery of Australia and the Western Australian Art Gallery. But many of her fellow stolen children of Sister Kate's didn't fare as well. Many have passed on and we recognise that they died young in very tragic circumstances and that this was a causal factor in their death, this abuse that they experienced. And it wasn't just the physical, emotional, sexual abuse, it was this attack on their very identity as Aboriginal children. 
I mean, how did they get away with it for so long? Sister Kate's Whitewashing the Children was produced by Kirsty Melville with sound production by David LeMay. And if you or your family have memories of Sister Kate's, we'd love you to share them with us. Please head to the History Listen website on the RN homepage. Thanks so much for your company. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Catch you next week.